I'm Julie Grove, I'm an elder here, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the church at Cars Lane. Let me introduce our speakers to you. The Reverend Dr. Harriet Harris is a priest in the Scottish Episcopal Church. As chaplain to the University of Birmingham, uh, of Edinburgh, sorry, Harriet, and head of the chaplaincy service, she oversees a large multi-faith and humanist chaplaincy team. Harriet is formerly a, a university lecturer in theology and now an honorary fellow in the Divinity School in Edinburgh. Harriet continues to teach and to write extensively within philosophy of religion and its interface with moral reasoning and with theology. Canon Brian Mountford is a priest in the Church of England and vicar of the University Church in Oxford, a place where, in his words, the secular world meets the religious world with 300,000 visitors a year. Brian is also a fellow of St Hilda's College. Philosopher, theologian, author, gardener, and cruise ship lecturer, among other things, his interests are in faith and doctrine, belief and unbelief. And with retirement from his pastorate early in 2016, after many years' service, he's looking forward to concentrating on his writing and speaking commitments uh, with some consultancy and chaplaincy work and his extensive garden in Islip. We are delighted to welcome both of you today. It's lovely to have you here. And it's Brian's latest book, Christian Atheist, that inspired the theme for today. On the face of it, atheism is cut and dried. The term is generally defined as a lack of belief in gods and supernatural beings. Some dictionaries define atheism as, quote, a belief that there is no God, capital G, which irritates atheists because of the assumption inherent in that capital G. Some dictionaries even go so far as to define atheism as wickedness or sinfulness. The current crop of atheist crusader authors, led by, of course, Richard Dawkins, rubbish the idea of theistic belief. But the God they disbelieve is a caricature. American philosopher and cognitive scientist Daniel Dennett sums it up. He writes, the kindly God who lovingly fashioned each and every one of us and sprinkled the sky with shining stars for our delight. That God is like Santa Claus, a myth of childhood. Not anything a sane, undeluded adult could literally believe in. That God must either be turned into a symbol for something less concrete or abandoned altogether. Quite. That aside, the term atheist is one that many of us, I guess, may not be comfortable with as a description of ourselves. Nevertheless, I know that there are some here who as, quote, sane, undeluded adults have given up on the church, rejecting traditional doctrine and practices. There are also many of us who, despite similar misgivings, cling on by our fingernails to church belonging. So the subtitle of Brian's book, Belonging Without Believing, allows us to explore the challenges that reason, 
science, doubt, and modernity throw at orthodox beliefs. And it raises philosophical, psychological, and sociological questions in the process. So, Brian, we look forward to your unpacking the oxymoron, Christian atheism. Well, I expect some of you know a bit about the Anglican liturgy and how a service begins. And uh, there was an occasion when a bishop came to conduct a service and he started by saying, there's something wrong with this microphone. And the congregation said, and also with you. <laughs> so thanks very much for inviting me to this church. It is, it's a cliche to say it's a privilege, but it is, in my case, a privilege because when I was about 18 and 19, uh, a, a rather conservative lad, I went around the Congregationalist churches of East London as uh, a lay preacher to places like Hackney and Stratford and Walthamstow and Tower Hamlets. And in order to provide material for the stuff which I uttered on those occasions, I, I turned to two published preachers. One was Leslie Weatherhead, who of course was a Methodist and was at the City Temple um, on the Hoban Viaduct. But the other was Leslie Tizard, who was, I think, a famous uh, minister of, of this church. So Cars Lane was in my mind from an early age. It was part of almost the mythology of my childhood. So to come to this church where he was once the minister is, as I say, a privilege. In congregationalism, I mean, I look back to those days and think, um, did I really uh, believe the same things that I believe now, then? And in many ways, I think I did. I mean, it seemed to me the church I went to in, in North London was very liberal, even though the statements of faith that underpin congregationalism are quite, well, have elements of Calvinism, for example, and are quite conservative. It was a liberal experience. It was partly, I suppose, because there were no creeds. We didn't stand up every Sunday and reel off a whole lot of stuff that we believed in. So let me just start by introducing the book, Christian Atheist, which Julie has just mentioned. Um, according to the 2011 census, 59% of those living in Britain describe themselves as Christian. This figure has fallen from 72% in 10 years. But we can be sure that of that 59%, 37 million people by my calculation, only a few have any real grasp of Christian doctrine and that most are what we usually refer to as cultural Christians for whom uh, belief is rather less important than identity. One of the myths of being a Christian country, which we once claimed to be, and in the past um, a Christian empire in which we enforced our religion on Africans and Indians and Maoris, for example, is that people all believe the same thing and that the recitation of a creed or the learning of a catechism achieved that. People have always held widely different ideas and beliefs about Christianity, from doubting Thomas in the New Testament to illiterate medieval parishioners drawn into buying indulgences in order to get time off purgatory. The novelist Thomas Hardy is a good illustration. Here was uh, a mid-19th century country boy who played the fiddle with his father and family in the church band for whom the church was an inevitable part of the fabric of society, who subsequently, as a young man, began to question his faith under the influence of writers like John Stuart Mill. And Hardy's biographer, Claire Tomalin, writes this, Hardy arrived 
at his own conclusion with many fits, starts and meanders, reluctant to let go of something that had absorbed so much of his life. He could no longer believe, but he cherished the memory of belief, and especially the centrality and beauty of Christian ritual in country life, and what it had meant to earlier generations and still means to some. Or in David Kiniston's splendid book, Austerity, Britain, 1945-51, to we find this comment on the state of religion in Britain as it was in 1946. Five million go to church. 40 million go to the cinema. The survey entitled Puzzled People found that two-thirds of men and four-fifths of women believed or believe more or less in the existence of a god. Only 61% of those believing in God also believed in the divinity of Christ. And paradoxically, 25% of those not believing in God did believe in the divinity of Christ. The survey also shows frequent criticism of perceived double standards in church life. A lot of bloody hypocrisy, if you ask me. There's worse people go to church than stays at home, I can tell you. A 40-year-old man captured the prevailing view when he said, I think religion's all right in a way, provided it's not overdone. And interesting, this immediate post-war cynicism was soon to be replaced by a small religious revival, short-lived, but a revival nevertheless. Billy Graham drawing busloads to London's Olympia to hear him preach. I was a child at the time and we lived in a uniform society, white, bonded by war, made equal by a narrow range of incomes, and as a nation, observing Sunday. In the Nonconformist Chapel, where I attended, there was a wall plaque dedicated to Francis and May Nathan, who had been missionaries in China uh, with the China Inland Mission in the late 19th century, and who'd been killed in the Boxer Uprising of uh, 1900. And it still seemed right in the 1950s that people should go out to the extremities of the world to convert the heathen to the one true religion, Christianity. But today, in the globalised world we live in, there's a religious supermarket out there. People who think of themselves as Christians may also practise yoga or speak of good and bad karma. Hindu visualisation practices are used in sports training Yet there are debates about whether Muslim women should be allowed to wear the burqa, or whether air hostesses should be allowed to wear the Christian cross. We can see that what characterises most world religions is a tension between pre-modern and modern interpretations of themselves. But globalisation, and especially the power of the internet, has led to pluralism in developed countries, typified by tolerance on the one hand and indifference on the other. There's a story of a multi-faith conference in which people of different faiths give presentations. First, the Buddhist stands up and talks of the ways to calm the mastery of desire and the path to enlightenment. And all the panellists say, wow, terrific. If that works for you, that's great. And then the Hindu stands up and talks of the cycles of suffering and birth and rebirth, the teachings of Krishna and the way to release, and they all say, wow, terrific, if that works for you, that's great. And so on until a Catholic priest stands up and talks of the message of Jesus Christ, the promise of salvation and the way to eternal life. And they all say, wow, terrific, if that works for you, that's great. And he thumped the table and shouted, no, it's not a question of whether it works for me. It's the true word of the living God, and if you don't believe it, you're damned to hell. And they all said, wow, terrific, if that works for you, that's great. In our multicultural 
globalised society with 61% of Oxford graduate students from abroad, we have students from a wide range of religious backgrounds and, of course, large numbers who consider themselves to be post-religious, um, who think religion has little or no relevance in the contemporary world. Some Oxbridge colleges, indeed, struggle with the anomaly that they are multicultural, multi-faith, secular institutions, and yet perhaps the largest building in their grounds is a Christian church. King's College Cambridge has agonised about this for years. Or there's the case of Churchill College, Cambridge, where Winston Churchill, after whom it was named, once offered to pay for a chapel. One of the fellows, Francis Crick, who with James Watson, of course, discovered the molecular structure of DNA, said he'd resign his fellowship if that were to happen, since religion is an obvious fantasy. So they got round it by building a chapel in a field away from the main buildings of the college. But Crick still resigned. Churchill pointed out to him that he didn't have to attend, but it was there for those uh, who wished to. And later on, Crick sent Churchill a five-pound note in a letter saying, here's five pounds towards the building of a college brothel. Students won't have to attend, but it will be there for those who would like to. <laughs> Many people today in this scientific age struggle with the idea of a metaphysical God. They struggle with the ideas about the supernatural in religion. There's a lot of talk about the clash between science and religion. Typically, the argument is set out as a collision between empirical, demonstrable fact on the one hand and metaphysical speculation uh, on the other. Religion sometimes responds to this by sticking faith into its own box and just saying, well, you know, you have to believe it. Or it's good to believe in impossible things because it proves your faith. Or by trying to fit stories such as the miracles into some sort of scientific explanation like um, Jesus walked on the water, but it was a mirage or something like that. This, of course, is to fail to see that science and religion are complementary disciplines and can work hand in hand. Religion doesn't fill the gaps in scientific knowledge and to suggest that it does makes God into what theologians sometimes call the God of the gaps, a very small notion of God uh, forever, uh, by definition, diminishing. Sooner or later on that theory, God will get smaller and smaller as scientific knowledge increases and God melts away. So it's in this context that I have been thinking and writing about what I've called Christian atheism. It's a catchy title for a set of responses to church and Christianity, which could equally have been identified as agnostic, for example, and which range from out-and-out -out rejection of a metaphysical god to rebellion against what you might call doctrinal despotism, particularly as experienced in fundamentalist-type churches or in an authoritarian structure like the Roman Catholic Church. As a part of this exploration, I invited um, Philip Pullman, who lives in Oxford, the author of his Dark Materials trilogy, to take part in a public conversation in the university church about the influence of religion on his writing. And in the course of the evening, he described himself as an atheist Christian, having been uh, partly brought up by a clergyman grandfather. Basically, Philip's father died when he was, um, when Philip was only about six, I think. And as a consequence, he spent a lot of time with his grandfather, who was um, a clergyman in East Anglia, at a time when the, the prayer book and the King James Bible were still widely read. And this grandfather made these texts familiar to Philip, who subsequently sort of embraced them in his writing, along with Milton and, and that period of literature. 
and uh, also the grandfather told him stories uh, at his knee and that therefore made religion an important part of this author's mental equipment even though he didn't and doesn't believe in God. I sometimes think of someone like Philip as a soft atheist and Richard Dawkins who lives just a few doors away from me as a hard atheist. You know, he, he takes no prisoners. But he's a very nice man, and actually, and a very literate, literary man. He can reel off poetry from memory in a way which uh, is essentially creative. And as I'm going to say in a moment, there's something of religion in that. So I decided to interview a small number of others whom I knew to be, in some sense, Christian atheists. And immediately I ran into this clash between uh, pre-modern and modern or post-modern thinking. Um, those I interviewed tended to think that affiliation to the church required um, a pre-modern acceptance of a system of doctrines about a great invisible supernatural order which if believed in will secure eternal blessedness not now but later in the heavenly world after we die. This was a stumbling block to many of my interviewees. For them, science and philosophy made this mental step extremely difficult. It's something which is summed up, I think, rather um, effectively by Richard Holloway, uh, who was, of course, Bishop of Edinburgh a few years back, in his autobiography, Leaving Alexandria, which is a wonderful book, I think. Presumably many of you will, will have seen it and read it. But he makes the distinction even more arrestingly like this. On the one hand, he says, you've got the conservative realist account of religion, which holds to a high-octane supernaturalism. There is a God out there who made everything, sustains the world, intervenes in it miraculously, became a Jew and founded a church to continue his work and will return at the end of time to punish the evil and reward the good. On the other hand, you've got the liberal view of religion as a natural human phenomenon. The Christian stories remain in place, but they are now viewed as a human construct. These are his words, not mine. Religion has been invented by the human imagination as a way of talking about ourselves and our place in the universe. It is poetry and myth. Take the Adam and Eve story. As a historical event, it leaves us cold. But as a myth about human discontent, Eve is not satisfied and is driven to eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, we see ourselves in the story. Myth and metaphor are life plays. They help us to understand what it is to be human. We are self-conscious animals, worried about death, and wondering how to find meaning, and religion helps us to do this. That's what Richard Holloway says. When I began to speak about my interviews with Christian atheists from the pulpit in the university church, um, I was surprised by the number of people who came up afterwards and said, you know, Vicar, I think I'm one of your Christian atheists. I often cross my fingers while saying the creed or hesitate to take communion because of my lack of faith. They sometimes added something about how liberating it was to hear their doubts taken seriously from the pulpit and accepted as a proper part of the religious experience. And I think that is terribly important in mission terms today. When I made um, a BBC programme, that sounds rather grand, actually it was the, that Sunday morning service at 8 o'clock or 8.10 whenever it comes on on Radio 4 about doubt as a positive and creative part of faith. That was the theme of our service. We received nearly a hundred letters and emails in support which was quite extraordinary and well above what is normally received after those programmes. It really struck a note with a wide listening audience. And this ought to be no surprise, it seems to me, since religious views have always been very varied. And what globalisation and freedom of communication has done is to make it much easier 
uh, to come out about doubt and disbelief and the holding of opinions that previously would have been regarded as heretical. And anyway, a large part of religious engagement is to do with practical religion rather than belief. I've been talking about and will continue to talk about believing and dogmatic ideas and teachings, but it's very important to understand that perhaps 50% or more of the religious uh, motivation comes through action, and that Christian action is a vital part of the life of the church. I remember a few years back in Oxford, I was the chair of the Churches Together in Oxford, and the local council was saying, well, you, it's all hot air with you, you know, you don't do anything for the needy people of our town, but you just sit and talk about it, pontificate. And so we said, well, where are the gaps in the provision that you're worried about? And they said, there's a gap from five to seven each night for homeless people in the city, while other organisations are doing the cleaning or preparing supper or whatever. If you could fill that with a sort of cafe, that would be good. And so we did that as an ecumenical project, Christian Action Together. And for the first time, people who, you know, one set of Christians who thought the other group were not Christians at all, started working together and not asking the belief questions, but getting on with the what shall I do to inherit eternal life aspect of Christianity. And that by doing, we often see what our faith should be like. I think faith and belief often comes as a secondary thing to doing and to our ethical sense of what is right and good and loving. And as one of my interviewees put it when describing Evensong as an oasis of contemplation, even though he was not a believer, uh, perhaps the exercise of contemplating what is inevitably poses the question, how shall I be? And I just put a little note here, they seem to be related to nothing, but I do remember um, asking one of my choir members whether they were sort of high church or, or low church, how they would describe themselves, and one said, oh, I'm Anglo-choral. And I think <laughs> being Anglo-choral does sum up quite a lot of people who spend their, their time in churches. So why would Christian atheists still be interested in Christianity and the life of the church? I asked myself, well, the three uh, typical answers emerged. First of all, community. Second, ethics. And the third, the elevating beauty of Christian worship and art. Of those who put community first, it was particularly the opportunity for children and young people to be together, to talk or to make music, the expectation that you could travel anywhere in the country and have a reasonable hope of being made welcome if you went to a church, and the opportunity to hear a live talk and to engage in conversation about things that matter, which is what we're doing this morning. And personally, I was reminded of my suburban parish in North London, where I was vicar before I went to Oxford, where social and cultural opportunities were few, but the church offered you know, badminton and tennis clubs, a church bar, uniformed organisations, choirs, concerts, various groups for men and women, both young and old, and many joined um, a club activity and then only secondarily considered themselves as part of the church, involving themselves in worship. So in other words, the church bar attracted a lot of people who didn't come to church, but there was always the hope that they might get involved in the reflective theological side of things at some point. Secondly, there were those who saw the ethical teachings of Jesus as being the most fundamental thing for them. Christ's moral compass was widely admired, and people aimed to live by the golden rule of do to others as you would have them do to you and for their children to do so too. And I remember in North London, the number of people who came, in those days baptism was extremely common still. I, it might have subsided a little bit, but people would come and knock on the door and say, I would like to have my baby baptized. 
because I value the, te the moral teaching of Jesus and when he or she grows up, I want them to be in a position to choose for themselves. That was their argument. And one of my interviewees, Roger, who is a, a philosopher, teaches philosophy in Oxford, is crippled with arthritis, poor chap, at the age of early 50s. He said this uh, as, as a Christian atheist, the grand idea in Christianity is the ethical one. Christ's teaching on attitudes to the sick, the poor, the deformed and the sinful, where we find an exceptional openness and inclusiveness. What builds the case against Jesus in the Gospels and leads to his arrest is precisely this goodness, he said. To the irritation of the religious elite, he mixes with prostitutes, lepers, tax collectors and sinners, heals on the Sabbath day and mocks hypocrisy. And Roger's best remark, it always seems to me, was this rather poetic statement, it expands the soul immeasurably not to despise, not to shun. It expands the soul. When I asked the classic question of him, do you need God to be good though? Um, you know, in order to be good, do you need a, a God? Do you need um, your ethics to be sourced as it were and by God's love in the world? It was generally felt that Christian ethics could stand alone without God and without divine authority. What made Christian ethics Christian, in their view, was the fact that it is based on the story of Jesus' admirable example. But the most valued residual appeal of Christianity was Christian art and aesthetics. And all, all not just Christian art, that's a very narrowing definition actually of art, isn't it? Um, T.S. Eliot certainly thought that Christian poetry was a very minor part of poetic, poetic expression because the subject matter of your art should be universal, should be far greater than a narrow religious view itself. Uh, so this great appeal of Christian uh, aesthetics, whether the evocative beauty of the Book of Common Prayer, attending choral evensong, or hearing the bark be minor mass, these were elevating experiences that had the potential to lift you out of yourself. And we all know that experience, and lots of people know that experience, whether they are overtly religious or not, to get a sense of uh, transcendence and otherness by hearing something so beautiful that it is greater than yourself and demands of you a different kind of response from what we normally offer to give you a new perspective and that these experiences are in short good for you. Indeed, there's a sense in which the aesthetic experience could be described, as I say, as transcendent because aesthetics provides another language for truth-telling where aesthetic experience is found to be as important as rational or logical thought. And when you put community ethics and aesthetic experience together, you have a close approximation to that liberal, anti-supernatural, realized eschatology religion, which is described by people like Don Cupid and Richard Holloway. So I suppose one ought to think of defining terms. As I say, what do I mean by Christian atheist? It could be non-theist. It could be agnostic, it could be rejecter of traditional teaching, it could be open-minded explorer of the meaning of life. And when, you, you know, when you're writing a book and looking for a title for it, obviously you want the most arresting one, hence Christian atheist. If I'd called it Christian agnostic, nobody would have given it a second look. But I just wanted you to, to know that this, is, this title it, it does embrace a wide view of things. What do I mean by belonging but not believing? I've described that to some extent in what I've just said, but there are plenty of people who don't want to have to believe what was it Alice in Wonderland called six impossible things before breakfast. Even though some Christians make uh, believing impossible things a mark of authenticity and identity. So people find something in the Christian heritage 
which is good and valuable and desirable, but they're not going to submit to a whole lot of doctrinal stuff. And the fact is, of course, that in our Church of England tradition, we do say the Nicene Creed most Sundays, which is something written in the fourth century, as I'm sure you all know, and therefore reflects the interest, both theological and political, of Christianity as it developed in Constantinople and in that uh, part of the Eastern Church at that time. The ideas of the Holy Trinity were developing and being defined, but always there was an objection by a group called the Arians, who thought that this was not a sensible philosophical view of things, and that they, were, they didn't really think that Jesus was the incarnate um, Son of God. And after the Council of Nicaea, where the Nicene Creed was put together, and, and subsequent finesses made to that creed and doctrine, um, there remained in the church big disagreements. The Arians nearly won. It could easily have been that we had an Arian creed rather than a Trinitarian creed. And how would the church be different today if that had been the case? And so doctrinal uh, kind of agreement and uniformity, I think, is not nearly as important as the clergy make us think, or as the church makes us think. You know, the church today is under threat in all sorts of ways, uh, but most particularly by social change and by indifference and a sense that it is less needful than it was in the past. And I think those who do seek after the meaning of life do so in a million different ways. So if we took a poll around all you people this morning, we'd probably find that you all believe slightly different things. I think that's true in any congregation. And yet at the same time, the church feels a need and has felt a need in the past to have a certain uniformity of belief. And that's been partly political. You know, we've all seen lots of TV programs and wonderful plays about the time of Henry VIII and, about the, and, and subsequently Elizabeth and before her, you know, Edward and Mary, and attempts to make everyone believe the same thing for national unity, really, to keep society together. We don't have that same need today. People are able to believe widely different things. Why can't the church allow that, uh, allow people to be comfortable? We talk of inclusivity, and inclusivity, nine times out of ten in my experience, is about um, sexual inclusivity particularly including gay and transgender people and so on in the community. But I think inclusivity should also be about welcoming into the communities of the church people who believe widely different things. However, we do say the creeds, and I'll just say this briefly, uh, and I continue to say them, um, not crossing my fingers, I see no point in that, but basically because they are at least a yardstick, a building block from which you can begin. You might disagree with what's said in them, but there's a starting point, and there is a historical continuity and a statement of what people have believed in the past. What I wanted to do, though, before I finish, is just to say a few things about what I've learnt since writing Christian Atheist. When it comes to Christian belief, there's no absolute truth, was my first point. Theology is like Impressionist painting. I'm going to expand on this in a moment. The church is more corrupt than I thought. Spiritual search in Britain has a lot to do with what's beyond words. And globalisation has had a bigger influence over religion than I thought. So first of all, that when it comes to Christian belief, there's no absolute truth. I think Christian ideas are culturally relative. I'll just throw that into the ring. Christianity is a way of looking at life in the light of a story. So Frank Skinner, the comedian, who actually in his writing reflects quite a bit on religion, 
uh, and has read Karen Armstrong, says this of Karen Armstrong. She says, says Frank Skinner, the whole idea of the literal interpretation of the Bible is a 19th century Protestant invention. The Bible is, in fact, she says, a long mystical poem that offers insights into an unknowable God. It is continually growing, expanding in meaning with each reader. And there's a person, Jane Davis, who runs a marvellous project in Liverpool called the Reader Project, which um, uh, uh, tries to take reading and stories into the lives of ordinary people. And she says that stories are shapes into which we pour our stuff, whatever that is. And sometimes it fits and sometimes it doesn't. We don't like that book, for example. I think we now see theology as like that. It's something into which we pour our stuff, our story, who we are, and sometimes it fits and sometimes it doesn't. And here's an example. In an old people's home, um, the Reader Project was reading Shelley's Ozymandias. Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. And one old lady in the care home said, um, That legless thing, that colossal wreck, in the desert is like me, isn't it? In a wheelchair. And this home is like a desert. Stories are shapes into which we pour our stuff. Theology is like Impressionist painting. When I was on holiday in April, just after Easter, staying in Spain, and in the accommodation we had, the books on the bookshelf were not exactly enticing, but I found on the table something from the uh, National Gallery about Impressionist painting. And in the introduction it said this, the Impressionist vocabulary includes, without a doubt, the direct living impression of a moment, which is often reproduced in what seems a chance detail of a whole event. These are scenes and figures of modern, everyday life, as opposed to depictions from classical or mythological stories, such as form the stock-in-trade of traditional art until the end of the 19th century. Workers and prostitutes, passers-by on the streets or guests in the cafe, the Impressionists were the first to regard such people as worthy. So, for example, in our churches, we pray for peace and justice in Syria, for example. But the close-up detail of a 14-year-old boy hanging by his arms, being beaten, concentrates that prayer and makes it real in a quite transformative way. Theology, I think, has to be experiential rather than theoretical. I've often referred to experiences of suffering or love or betrayal or excitement or relief or forgiveness, either given or received, as the raw material of theology, and I believe that to be the case. And I want to campaign, really, for more natural theology, as we call it, more experiential theology in church life. School teachers, besides, are trained to start from the child's experience, and so it ought to be for preachers. And how deductive and explanatory do we have to be anyway? Isn't it more a matter of prompting a question or provoking a thought? We had a colleague in Oxford called Giles Fraser, who's now quite a famous contributor to The Guardian and to the BBC. And whenever he gave a sermon, he called it a provocation not a sermon. He said, I'm just going to give you a provocation this morning. Uh, and of course, that's right. That's what it should be. Uh, it should be something that gets people thinking. In our bathroom at home, we, there's a beautiful um, conical shell, the colour of pearl, and it's big and brilliantly designed and so that the spiralling mollusk is protected from its pred predators. And I thought recently, when contemplating it, how amazing that nature had evolved this wonderful object that, if man-made, would command a very high price. That seemed to me a theological experience. It wasn't a case 
for God from the argument of design. It was simply a kind of religious impression from which I deduced nothing in particular. That's the thing I really want to say that, you know, each theological experience doesn't have to be earth shattering. It can leave you with nothing in particular, possibly. Sometimes it might be the opposite. I think on this, this question of theological impressionism, um, I also wanted to say that actually experiences like this, like the old lady in the care home, seem to me very close to the Gospels. And that entry um, in the uh, National Gallery publication similar workers and prostitutes passers-by in the streets or guests in the cafe ring any bells that's the gospel there are laborers in the vineyard and the farmers sowing their seed and threshing their corn the woman taken in adultery whom the self-righteous religious types want to stone to death and the woman in the city who was a sinner who brought an alabaster jar of ointment to the pharisees house where jesus was eating and so on there was that classic passerby, the diminutive Jericho tax collector, Zacchaeus, who climbed a fig tree to see Jesus and ended up having him to dinner. And in the cafe category, the guests at the marriage feast in Cana, or the crowd sitting on the ground feeding the 5,000, or the theological soirees with Mary and Martha. And so you see how I'm getting to that impressionism, an impressionism which is seeing small details rather than the, the big grandiose picture is in itself a kind of critique of dogmatic theology. Now I'm not going to knock systematic theology altogether but it's never been important to me. I think these smaller experiential aspects are the way forward. The church is more corrupt than I thought well, not in the obvious way of the uh, behaviour of some of the clergy in the church, but I think the way in which I detect increasing conservatism amongst the clergy and the uh, desire to maintain hierarchy and dogma at the expense of being liberal. And... The spiritual search in Britain has a lot to do with what's beyond words. Well, we've touched that with the aesthetic, music particularly. Frank Skinner says in his writing, Middle England is a vague concept, but to me it refers to that great mass of people who never question or even consider anything outside the mainstream view. People who worship at the altar of the great god, normal. Think Shakespeare is boring and never miss top gear. To counterbalance that, he also says that in the 21st century Britain, where according to the papers, everyone's drunk, illiterate, and carrying a knife, people still queue up to see beautiful things. So you've got Philistinism on the one hand and the thirst for truth and beauty side by side. And I think Frank's exaggerated way of expressing that is actually very good. So basically, I'm looking to liberate people who have a very, very loose doctrinal base, a very, very loose view of what it is important to believe about Christianity. I want to be liberal in a real sense about that and not uh, to be mealy-mouthed about it at all. And I want to incorporate these people into the life of an institution which I think has a future, despite what many people say, if only we will allow ourselves to loosen up a bit. Thank you. We do have time for one or two questions at this stage. Uh, just two quick ones. The first one is concerning um, continuing to say the creed. It did jump out at me actually in the middle of a really good talk and I sort of smell a little rat there somehow. And secondly, um, when you, the, you talked about the experience of the shell as a theological experience, I understand what you're saying, but I know people who would say, why do you have to use that word? 
Why can't you use another word to describe the experience, not theological? Well, the well, second one first, of course, I could use another experience. It could be something like awe and wonder. I just think that for me, and for many people, what I call theological experience is an experience of awe and wonder, an experience of otherness, whether you're posing, which doesn't imply posing the existence of an external God necessarily. You know, we've got to have some content to this notion of, of being overawed by uh, relationship, by beauty, and so on. On the first question, uh, creed smelling a rat, do you mean that I'm really putting God back into a picture where I seem to have taken him out of it a bit? I just think that, you know, I am a practicing priest, so I couldn't really continue to minister to my congregation and to celebrate the Eucharist and so on if I were saying what the church believes is totally empty. That would be, I would need to resign rather than do that. One of the questions raised in my book, which I didn't mention, is if you can, if you can believe anything you like, then it ceases to be Christianity anyway, doesn't it? So um, what's the point? And then it raises the question, what, are there any fundamentals that you think that you must have in order to be a Christian? Well, for me, the Christian story is that fundamental, perhaps the only absolutely necessary fundamental. You couldn't do it without the gospel story. You might want to argue you couldn't do it without the interpretation of the gospel story, which is both in the gospels and in the rest of the New Testament and then in the, in, in the theologizing of the church church tradition in other words um, although I'm you know I have some questions about that what I really like best are the minimalist creeds like do you believe and trust in God the Father who made the world son Jesus Christ etc which are the baptism creeds and I think you need a building block if you were a, a musician and you wanted to be a composer then you would even however experimental and radical you were going to be you would need to know the rudiments of music and need to be able to harmonize a melody in the style of Bach. Now, it's not a very, not a completely exact parallel, but that's what I'm thinking. You want to lose, welcome people who want to loosen up. What about those people you don't welcome or don't welcome you, who may be in your congregation? They, they scorn Oxford Church in the way you, you run it. And perhaps many of us are in that situation with our own congregations, where we work and where we live and where we have our being, that we actually find that we believe differently and try to work out where we believe the same and where we can rub along together with difficulty, but with humanity and a bit of a Christian sense, but say, look, where are we going with what you're saying, please? Mm. Well, I just think that's a very sensitive um, observation. and. Thank you very much, and I, I hope that in the course of the day we might be able to, um, op you know, to concentrate a bit on, on that. Yes, I'm, I live in a bubble in Oxford. Oxford in itself is a bubble. We have a, a church which is very grand and has lovely music, and its liturgical uh, practice is very straight. On the other hand, I sometimes think that um, if you're going to be really honest and radical in your theologizing, in your theological thinking, people need in a community stability at some point, and I think liturgical stability is a good thing. Sometimes in other traditions you have extremely tight sort of creedal positions, fundamentalist positions, but more extravagant worship, and, and that works the other way around. But, no, I haven't got a, a quick answer to your sensitive point. Thank you.